What percentage of people who have the virus are seriously ill? Uh, I remember a moment ago I referred to the fact that in one study about 80% of people have mild disease. Now, as testing becomes more prevalent and we get a better sense of the total number of people who have the disease, uh, those kinds of uh, observations may become more important. Ballast Office in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to The Ballast Life, a series of conversations highlighting respected professionals, community leaders, and important topics that are necessary to achieving financial cohesion. This is John Boardman, founder and CEO of Ballast, and I'm thrilled today, not under these circumstances, of course, but thrilled to have our guest, Paul Bachner, Dr. Paul Bachner, who is a professor of pathology and laboratory medicine at University of Kentucky. Um, have known Paul for several years now, and his resume sort of speaks for itself with his experience in the pathology field. But we had a really intriguing conversation a week ago, and I, uh, I mentioned the idea to Paul of uh, sitting down for a podcast interview so that our broader audience and clients and professionals that we work with could hear some of his opinions on the coronavirus issue, uh, COVID-19, I guess, as it's most uh, specifically referred to. So, Paul, I just want to thank you for joining me today on this. Well, thank you, John. It's my pleasure. There's a huge amount of information out there in the media. There's also a lot of misinformation out there, and hopefully I can clarify some of this. Yeah, and as I mentioned to you, I think so much of what we're hearing now is from media types and financial media types. So, I think having you here today um, will provide a little bit of clarity, I, you know, sitting here today on, on Thursday, March 5th, you know, markets are reeling over what this may become and data continues to sort of get updated um, by the minute on how many cases um, and unfortunate deaths around the world. And so having you here today, again, I hope can provide some clarity. Before we sort of jump into the specifics of this issue, do you want to give everyone sort of a quick snapshot of your, your background? Well, I've been practicing pathology for over 50 years. Um, I trained in New York City at uh, the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. I was a, did, was a medical student there and also a resident in pathology and then on faculty for a brief period of time. I came to Kentucky in 1993 as director of laboratories at the University of Kentucky Medical Center and became chairman of the department uh, five years later and was in that position for 15 years. I, uh, during that period of time between 19, uh, excuse me, between 2015 and 2017, I also served as the director of the Kentucky State Public Health Laboratory and had uh, considerable involvement with public health testing for uh, respiratory viruses, including MERS, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, as well as uh, the Ebola virus. Uh, and I maintain some con contacts with the current uh, laboratory director. Very good. So you've been with UK uh, over 25 years now. Yes, I have. Um, how often, um, I mean, obviously we know about the big outbreaks that the world's dealt with over the last you know, a few decades. Um, you know, this one, this one seems to be um, one that that has really uh, 
spooked everyone in a way that we, um, I don't think anybody was anticipating with the data still coming out day by day. What are your sort of impressions of where this outbreak sits and sort of your general thoughts on it? Well, I think it's probably uh, early times yet, even though we're seeing the spread of the virus to various countries around the world, uh, increasing number of patients uh, uh, affected by it, uh, uh, some alarming mortality. Uh, to me, it is one of a series of respiratory-based viruses that we've seen over the last 20 22 years. Uh, this includes the uh, influenza. Uh, uh, we, we had the swine flu epidemic uh, back about 20 years ago, which was quite severe. Uh, we had uh, uh, coronavirus types of uh, 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 epidemics. We had the so-called SARS epidemic, the systemic acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, one which also, you know, began in China, actually. Uh, and then we had MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which began in the Middle East and stays r rather confined uh, to the Middle East. And, and now we have the coronavirus, which is uh, so-called, so as, as you said, John, COVID-19. Actually, its full name is SARS COVID-19. Uh, linking it to the uh, SARS epidemic, which still sort of is out there uh, and has created some issues in, in, in the testing process. But yeah. uh, to, to answer your question uh, very briefly, we don't know yet where this is going. Uh, it, what we see is alarming, but I think it's too soon to be able to say how bad this is going to be. Yeah. We put out a commentary last week, and I think that's what started our conversation, where I had referenced some of the mortality rates that sort of had been experienced based on the data that had been submitted so far. Um, and we discussed that. Can you speak to that, you know, some of the data that we're receiving and we're hearing the number, you know, 2% or 3% mortality, with, which is naturally going to bring on the comparisons that people um, will uh, lead to, which is comparing it to the flu or worse epidemics like the Spanish flu in the early 1900s. Um, how do you, you know, from a professional standpoint, look at that data today? Do you look at that as um, um, something that you can conclude anything from, or does it still feel very much incomplete? Well, the data on mortality, as you point out, varies depending on what the source uh, of the information is, uh, what country you're talking about, what population of people you're looking at. And I, you know, I've heard numbers as low as 1%, and most recently the World Health Organization, I, I think, came out with a number of 3.4%. Now, the problem with any mortality statistic is it's based on two numbers, a numerator, which is the number of people who have died, uh, and a denominator, which is the number of people who uh, have the disease. Now, the number of people who died is, is fairly easy to ascertain since death is a fairly finite 
uh, endpoint. The number of people who have the disease is where the the ambiguity comes in with mortality statistics. So numbers, for instance, uh, mortality statistics early on, uh, let's say a month ago, are probably not terribly reliable because the, the denominator, the number of people with the disease, is severely underestimated. Uh, because it doesn't include people with mild symptoms or people who have not yet been tested because testing was not widely available. The numbers, uh, for instance, coming from China uh, are on the higher side, but the problem with the Chinese numbers is that it's based on people who've been hospitalized. So uh, you, you're immediately lowering the denominator. Uh, and, you know, while I, I don't mean to equate this current epidemic with influenza, to put this into context, uh, the number, the mortality rate for influenza is probably somewhere in the 1% to 2%. And in the last um, 20 years, uh, each year, the number of people dying from influenza in the U.S. has ranged between 10,000 and 60,000. So it, it, it's, you know, sort of a standard of reference that the, the flu, ep and, and, you know, the flu epidemic is still with us, although flu tends to be seasonal, and uh, we tend to see it in the winter months, and then as the uh, spring and summer comes, it, it dies out. The flu virus apparently doesn't like being warm. Uh, we don't know uh, what this coronavirus will do uh, in April and May and June. Uh, we know that the SARS virus was not particularly seasonal. You mentioned the classification of the, as a coronavirus. And I th you know, we had touched on this a little bit the other day. Um, but it's my understanding that the common cold is actually a coronavirus. What is it about this specific coronavirus that is based on, you know, your sort of data to, yeah. up till now that, that makes it, what has created such a big issue out of this yeah. if the common cold has very many similarities? Well, the viruses in general, and this is true of the influenza virus and it's true of the coronavirus, are very fickle in terms of their genetic makeup. Uh, and as you know, we think the coronavirus originated in bats uh, with perhaps other, other animals as intermediary sources. And, and that's probably true of the SARS virus as well, and it may also be true of MERS, although people have picked on camels as uh, uh, mm. an intermediary source. But they're all called coronavirus because when you look at them under an electron microscope, they have this corona or crown of little things sticking out from the surface of the virus. And each of these are like little uh, sticky pads. Uh, and, 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 and that's how the virus attaches to human cells. And it turns out that the ability of these sticky pads to attach to human cells varies from strain to strain. So uh, as an example, the, the, the SARS virus 
sticks to lung cells and apparently can stick to kidney cells as well. And, and so you had some uh, kidney disease associated with SARS. The current COVID-19 apparently pretty much restricts its stickiness to lung cells and doesn't stick to kidney cells uh, in particular. So they vary. One of the uncertainties, of course, is that when transmission of the virus takes place, particularly interspecies transmission, a bat to a human, uh, there may be some considerable genetic variation taking place. These, these viruses are very clever, and they just sort of change their genetic makeup. And there are many species out there. There already have been speciations made uh, of these viruses. And uh, some of that has been helpful from an epidemiological standpoint in trying to look for how person-to-person -person transmission takes place. Okay, very interesting. You mentioned SARS, MERS. I, I know one of the sort of observations so far has been that this, people who have been infected with this virus, in many cases are asymptomatic. They may be potentially carrying the virus and even passing the virus on without knowing that they had it. Was that a common trait with these other coronaviruses as well, or is, does that seem to be sort of an interesting yeah. attribute of this specific one? Well, the, 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 this specific virus appears, appears to uh, have a fairly mild course in a lot of people. I've seen some numbers, I think, from the uh, Chinese studies and the Singapore studies, where about 80% of people who are proven to have the virus by lab test uh, have a very mild uh, disorder characterized by cough and maybe fever and uh, not much else, and you know, you know, not much on on a CAT scan study of the lung. Um, the SARS virus was somewhat more, created more sickness. Uh, now again, switching back to the coronavirus, the COVID-19, uh, after the, you, you finish talking about these 80% of people who have mild disease, uh, you get into people who have more severe disease, and there's a 15% that seem to wind up in an ICU and another 5% that are severely ill uh, um, and, and, and have a pulmonary x-ray or CAT scan picture looking very much like what you saw in the SARS uh, epidemic. Um, other peculiarities of this virus, it doesn't seem to do much to younger people. Uh, no one under the age of 15 has been shown to be symptomatic, although uh, there have been some kiddos with, with positive serologic findings. Mm. On the other end, and this is true of SARS and MERS and swine flu, the serious morbidity or sickness, if you will, and risk of death is worse in the elderly and people with other diseases, particularly pulmonary disease, diabetes, any disease in which the immune system is compromised. Yeah, interesting. I and mean, you mentioned that the other day that 
oftentimes these viruses lead to other health issues and that ends up becoming yeah. the, the, the major yeah. problem that leads to, to death yeah. and those higher mortality rates. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, an area of great concern, obviously, is everyone is looking at this evolution of this um, virus and its penetration in various populations. The healthcare community is, I, I wouldn't say panicked, but is very concerned about being able to take care of these people. Uh, one thing I've not heard mentioned uh, is that the, the current availability of respirators in U.S. hospitals is limited. Uh, and if there's a significant increase in respirator uh, need, uh, the healthcare community is going to wind up having to make some very difficult, difficult choices. The impact of these seriously ill patients on any hospital is going to be enormous. Uh, from the standpoint of the laboratory, where my expertise is, uh, the burden on, on laboratories in terms of monitoring uh, the progression of the disease is going to be immense because these people not only have um, uh, pulmonary disease, uh, they, they, they will also in some cases have evidence of kidney disease, uh, liver disease, what have you, and all of this creates uh, a backlog of testing that has to take place totally separate from testing for the presence or absence of the virus. Speak to the testing a little bit. I know we, we are hearing stories that there I mean, at this point not enough tests to go around. I mean, the CDC, I guess, is, is trying to fast track whatever process they go through. What, why is there such a delay in, in testing in a situation like this? Why are we not adequately equipped? Well, that, it's a, that's a complex answer to that question. And, you know, unfortunately, the issue with testing has sort of become wrapped in uh, political overtones uh, on sort of both sides of the both sides of the political aisle, and I don't really want to get into that. Mm -hmm. But the, the creation of a test to ascertain the presence of this virus is not an easy thing. Uh, the CDC actually came up with a kit rather quickly. Now, typically in a situation, uh, typically t a lab test for a virus of this sort has to go through a, a fairly lengthy FDA approval process, uh, which can take six months to a year. Now, what the FDA has done is they've uh, uh, allowed for what's called an emergency use authorization because there's a public health emergency. And they shipped out kits to public health laboratories, state labs, big city labs. There were some problems with the original kit, uh, uh, which I'm not going to go into because it's sort of complex. Uh, but the kits are usable in actual fact. Uh, they're just a component of it is not being used. I, I know for a fact that the uh, Kentucky State Lab started testing this past Monday. Uh, so testing is available through the state lab. Now, when all this started, all tests had to be sent 
to the CDC because there was no local uh, availability and none of the commercial labs or even academic labs such mm. as the University of Kentucky were able to do the test. So that, of course, added uh, a significant time delay. And, you know, if you think about it, if, if you're a doctor in an emergency room trying to make a decision whether to hospitalize uh, or suggest quarantining an individual with fever and a cough uh, and maybe an ambiguous CAT scan, uh, not having that information is very difficult. You can test the patient for other things, such as flu, uh, and if that turns up to be positive, then, then you're fine. But if not, the, the physician really doesn't, doesn't know what to do, and his or her hands are, are tied. So being able to do the tests in, in, in the state public health lab is good, but it's still, you're still talking about two, three days, all right? So really the, you know, the, for, for managing individual patients from a treatment perspective and from an epidemiological perspective really will require the tests to be available in, within hospital laboratories. And that may, that's gonna happen down the road, but it's not gonna happen this week. Uh, and I'm not going to try to guess <laughs> beyond that as to when it might be available. Right. You know, one of the, I mean, obviously your, your academic background, current position, um, is one of the, the primary reasons I wanted you to have, I don't get your opinion on these things, but also your, your world travels with your, uh, the lab inspections that you've done. And I know you visited all areas of the world, and I thought it would be interesting to sort of get your perspective on the fact that this virus appears to have originated in China, and sort of speaking to sort of their your your impression at least of their capacity to deal with this situation. They obviously mobilized very quickly with some of the hospital constructions mm -hmm. uh, that they did, and just sort of want to get your thoughts on mm -hmm. China being the source, and is that a is that a does that make this worse, or, or, or is that a difficult question to answer? Well, I don't know if it's worse or not. As, as you point out, I've, I've done uh, many inspec uh, inspections of laboratories on behalf of the College of American Pathologists for labs that want accreditation uh, by us. And I've been to China many times, as well as Korea and Japan and Taiwan and uh, other, other parts of the world. China is a unique country. Uh, uh, it's unique because somehow it, it seems to have turned out to be the, the seedbed for uh, SARS and for the current coronavirus outbreak. In terms of their reaction to it, they have reacted very, very positively. Now, keep in mind that China is... Uh, uh, an authoritarian police state, and they can do things there which would never fly in the United States. They, 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 you know, they can forcibly quarantine people. They can close all the schools in a in in a in, in a region. They can do all, all sorts of things that would not be able to be done 
in 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 the U.S. or even in Italy, for that matter. So, and the the Chinese have uh, uh, been. They started out with their usual reflex of nothing's wrong, uh, but then they they really switched over and have been fairly outgoing in their information. There was an excellent paper in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of weeks ago outlining the details of the clinical and radiological uh, and virological uh, aspects of this disease. Uh, and if you look at the numbers coming out of China, they seem to be getting better. Now, to what extent this reflects the very harsh measures they've taken, or whether it may reflect uh, some hopeful epidemiologic aspect uh, of, of this disease, it's really too soon to know. Uh, everywhere else, the numbers seem to be going up. Speaking of data, um, I, it sounds like you're keeping up with the data every day, just sort of watching the progression of this. What are the data points that you're looking for? I know um, some of the data I've looked at has looked at active cases, uh, obviously uh, mortality, and then closed cases, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, thinking about each of these countries, um, which then now there are dozens of countries that have cases um, how they actually close a case. Um, what are what is some of the data that you will data points that you'll be looking at um, over the coming coming days and weeks? Well, I, I I think you want to try to get a sense of what the severity of the disease is, particularly as you begin to see so-called. Um, um, community transmission. In other words, person A to person B, uh, and many of person B's are going to be healthcare workers because they're going to be taking care of person A. Um, so you're going to want to see, you know, what percentage of people who have the virus are seriously ill. Uh, I remember a moment ago I referred to the fact that in one study about 80% of people have mild disease. Now, as testing becomes more prevalent and we get a better sense of the total number of people who have the disease, uh, those kinds of uh, observations may become more important. From an epidemiological standpoint, what you really want to know is uh, what is the transmissibility of the disease. The epidemiologists have a number called uh, R naught, which is the number of people that are infected by one person. Right now, it seems to be about two. So if you just do the math, if, if, if you start out with an index case, who can infect two people, and then those two people can infect four people, and the four people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as long as that number is greater than one, the epidemic will continue to grow. If that slips below one, then the epidemic will eventually die out. Um. When, I'm not asking you to predict how this will play out. I think that's that would be an unfair question to you. Good, because I won't answer it. <laughs> um, but 
SARS, MERS, you know, um, we don't hear about those today as much. I mean, we know about them having been a, a scary period of time. This seems more significant, um, but how did those play out? And 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 what 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 was the progression that eventually created some amount of resolution yeah. to that being a scare? Well, MERS basically stayed in the Middle East. It started out in I think in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then there was some minor spread, but the spread was basically by travel. Uh, I don't remember how many MERS cases we saw in the U.S., but they were really minimal. And MERS has not, the Middle East Respiratory uh, Syndrome, has not been a big issue. It's still out there. There are scattered cases periodically, uh, primarily in the Middle East, but uh, not much in this country. SARS also sort of petered out. We, we did have some serious illness and even death in the U.S., but, and it's still around. It periodically turns up, but it, it certainly is you know, it's far less right now than, let's say, so-called seasonal influenza, which is much, much more uh, of an issue. Yeah. And as I, I said a moment ago, I, I, I'm not going to even guess as to where this is going because uh, nobody really knows. Right now it's alarming. Uh, but, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's, you know, at the National Institute of Health, I saw him interviewed on TV uh, the other day, and he was asked this question, and he basically said what I said, that he doesn't know where this is going. He says, and nobody knows when we look back on this, uh, you know, a couple of years down the road, nobody really knows how bad it was yeah. because we just don't know. Absolutely. And in the meantime, everyone should, you know, wash their hands regularly. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's <laughs> the one thing we can all control. Um, but the range of potential outcomes is is vast, I guess, is what you're telling us of, of where this could go. Well, you know, the World Health Organization has, interestingly enough, not used the word pandemic yet. Uh, and I think that's a public relations thing because pandemic has... It's a scary word. It's a scary word, and it makes it sound like, you know, the 1917-1918 so-called Spanish flu pandemic. But th th this thing really fits the definition of, of, of a pandemic, which is basically an epidemic taking place in multiple countries. Yeah. Uh, how severe it's going to be, I, I don't know. It's peculiar that it, it, it seems to be worse in, in, in some places than others. Italy, South Korea, uh, nobody really knows, nobody knows why. Uh, and for that matter, uh, the, the question always comes up is when you see bad numbers as compared to, uh, compare in one place compared to another, are you looking at a statistical aberration uh, or are you looking at some reality? Yeah, I noticed just looking at the data earlier, the mortality rates vary dramatically yes. based on country, and that could be a yeah. byproduct of age group yeah. as well. It, it, it yeah. didn't have it broken down. That's well, it may be age group. It may be the population that's being sampled. If if you're just looking at people who you know, a population of people that have been tested because they had a cough and a fever. 
the mortality numbers are going to be a lot lower. If you're looking at a population of people such as the Chinese study uh, who were studied uh, based on the fact that they were in a hospital, yeah. hmm, uh, the mortality numbers are going to be far worse because, because of selection. Yeah. You're pre-selecting a population at greater risk. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, I appreciate the time today. I have one last question for you because um, I think I could talk to you all day about this. I peppered you with the questions the other day, and I appreciate you coming back in uh, for me to ask you more questions. Um, maybe slightly unfair question, uh, but not really predicting um, where this will go. But if you look at your, back at your career and your experience with the Department of Health and the university um, and these various viral outbreaks that have occurred. Where do you where do you put this one? Um, you know, looking back over your career, if you had to say from the worst, most dangerous to sort of feels like this might play out the way SARS and MERS played out. Well, it's a hard question to answer uh, because in order to compare what's happening now to what happened with swine flu and Ebola and, and SARS and MERS, you know, all of the so-called epidemics that I've seen in, in, in my career, uh, it's hard to make that comparison because I don't know where this is going. Uh, I, I, I hope it'll, it'll, it'll peter out as some of the others and maybe become a sort of seasonal event uh, the way influenza mm -hmm. has. But I, I, it's just I, I don't think the data is in yet. I, I think it's worrisome. Uh, but I think that, you know, we'll see what happens in the U.S., uh, we, you know, New York seems to be having, has sort of a micro epidemic, uh, but we'll, we'll just have to see. I, I really, I, I'm reluctant to try to, uh, you, you know, give this, you know, yeah. three stars, four stars, yeah. five stars. Yeah, no, that's, that's I, a fair I, answer. I, I just don't know. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think anyone knows. Yeah. I mean, it would seem to me that the next several days, weeks are, are yeah. obviously critical to see sort of if momentum, yeah. because based on some of the charts I've looked at, I mean, it looks like the momentum of new cases, it's increasing, but it's not increasing yeah. at, a, at an increasing percentage. And I, but that some of that, I think, may point to the incomplete data as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that the, uh, the, the public should be made aware of facts and, mm. and science and, and not get caught up in, in either fear-mongering or, you know, political positioning. Um, and the, uh, clearly there's going to be a major uh, challenge to the healthcare system to deal with this because the, certainly one of the things that came out of the SARS epidemic that was that some of the most critically sick people were healthcare workers who contracted this uh, as a result of working with uh, patients. So again, you know, most, most hospitals are not used to dealing with this type of situation, and there are all sorts of 
patient, uh, excuse me, uh, staff safety issues, protective equipment, uh, which is not available. There's a lot of it that's just not there. Uh, just, you know, keeping up with things like disinfectants and masks and respirators and uh, other type things. This is, there's just, in passing, this is an issue in the laboratories as well. You know, the emphasis on the testing has been on the kits. But there hasn't been a lot of discussion, public discussion, of what happens once those kits reach the laboratories. The laboratories have to validate those kits, and they need to have the staff available to uh, do the testing. The testing has to be, the staff has to be trained to do the testing and also to take the appropriate precautions because they're potentially dealing with a live virus in a test tube. So uh, all of these are very real issues. Well, you're speaking to exactly why we had you today because I think when we you know, look on the internet or the newspaper and we see pictures of people in hazmat suits, yeah. um, I think obviously the natural human reaction is to get a, a little bit freaked out by yeah. you know what we're dealing with. So I really appreciate your your uh, input today, and uh, we'll we'll see where it goes from here. But I thought it would be good for our audience to hear um, from someone that was actually a true expert in the field. Thank you, John. It was right. my pleasure. Thank you. Take care.